Okay, so you have a new book out. Tell everyone about it. Yes, uh, the new book is called Let the Wild Grasses Grow. It's inspired by my grandma and grandpa Cordova, uh, Della Chavez and, and John Cordova, and it's kind of a look at what would happen to them if I if these two favorite people in my life lived, or, well, they did live during the 1920s, but what what, what could I envision, envision happen to them throughout that time? You can pick it up at toryhousepress.org or anywhere else that you buy your books, preferably independent bookstores. Thanks. It's a beautiful book. What a beautiful book, Larry. I mean, it really, really is. I showed Brandon. He, he said, wow, that's a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah I, I tortured the cover designer. Oh. <laughs> I, I, worked, I worked with him. He was the, he's this Spanish guy living in Thailand. And he also has a partner in Spain. And I think he never wants to talk to me again because I was so <laughs> nitpicky about having accuracy in the cover right you know, the right. the types of ships even the background is is authentic to the region and the the outfit that the woman's wearing we had a hell of a time finding that she's got a sword in her hand and he had the wrong kind of sword and he said who's who's gonna know i said i'm gonna know yeah and there's there's people out there who are really pedantic about these kinds of things you know well yeah and the people who know this are the people that are really going to care they're the yeah. really, it's a passion for them. That's know? right. And so, oh, I've already gotten a few messages from people saying, you know, the Chinese character you used on this page is wrong. Yeah. And I looked and said, oh, and I, I didn't recognize it. And I looked it up and I said, oh, you're right. Because, you know, the, these section headings have this calligraphy. Right. And and I, I actually... I know a guy who's a, a master calligrapher and I asked, I got him to do it for me and he made a mistake. Uh -huh. He mixed up dynasties. And so one character was off and I didn't catch it. I thought, of course he knows. Right. This guy comes on and says, that's the wrong one. And I went to, this is after the book's printed. Yeah. The one you have has the wrong character in it. So I'm never going to live that down. No, no, never. And all this so, stuff right here that we're talking about is golden. I hope you're okay with us publishing it. Oh, yeah, sure. It's beautiful stuff. It really Man, is. I wish I noticed that character was wrong. I oh, know. that would have been so good. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. There's no way. But but the people who have the passion for it, they're the ones who are going to know. Um, yeah. And that's why it matters. And you're an artist. So it's like I can see where this where this cover back and forth probably um, was, 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 was problematic or at least treacherous a bit. Well, but I mean, I'm, I'm over, over the moon with the design. That wasn't mm -hmm. my design. It was this cover design. So I found yeah. the right person. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful. I, I just, I'm just amazed by what he came up with. Yeah. It was just it's the details that I picked on him. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful book. Um, it's one of the most beautiful books I've had in my hands in a long, very long time. Um, so, all right. So I'll get this introduced. And I think Brandon's probably going to edit that whole part into the podcast because okay. it was, because sure. it was really cool. And we can go back there too. Um, because I have so many, I have a few questions that I know that you can just expand <clears throat> upon, um, right. that delve into so much of this, that it intrigued me, which I, which made me really glad we kind of put it off a week. I wanted to get even farther into it. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and I did, and, and it, it was such a pleasure. So I'll introduce the podcast and then you can go for a reading for, you know, 
whatever long, three to five minutes, okay. something short, and then we'll just start chatting. But like I said, Brandon will probably like edit this back in because I love this idea about <laughs> talking about, well, especially it's historical fiction, but it's historical fiction from a culture outside of anything that we know here in the Western, uh, Western Hemisphere. Um, and, and so it's, it, you're going to run into things we would never run into. All right. So this is Case Johnson. This is the Literally Podcast. Today we're talking with Larry Fain. It's Fain. Fain, correct? Fain. Fain. Yes. Uh, about his new book, uh, recent release, recently released, The Flower Boat Girl, a novel based on a true story. And it is, and it's a, it's a beautiful book. Hold it up. All right. Here we go. I can't see right up. There. Oh, there I go. There we go. It's a beautiful book, and you can see by the cover, it's absolutely stunning. And it's a historical fiction novel um, that goes back th- to almost three three centuries. And uh, I I fell in love with it from the very first page. And Larry's going to read from the very first page today, and you'll see that uh, this book jumps right into into the life of the protagonist. Go ahead, Larry. Okay, I'll read from which is called Magpies. And you're going to have to imagine that a, a Chinese woman is reading this, not, not me. So use your imagination. I'll never believe in birds, especially magpies. Listen to them squawking and clattering on the deck overhead like armies battling on scratchy twig feet. The same thing every day before sunset but today they were more grating than usual. I rose from the sleeping mat and pounded the ceiling. The customer in my bed snorted and rolled onto his side, offering a view of his scar-crossed coolies back. I dared not hit the ceiling again for fear of disturbing him and the anticipated tip. Let the birds wake him. How did magpies become harbingers of good fortune? Was it because of that story? the one my mother loved to cry over. Every year, at the height of summer, the magpies linked wings, forming a footbridge across heaven to unite a lonely weaving girl with her shepherd boy lover, just for one day. Why didn't she stay with him, I always asked. Why didn't she make the birds weave a bridge down to earth and let them both escape? Every year, my mother smiled at such questions. Oh, Yang, my big-eyed girl, it's because a single day of pleasure so pure can last an entire year. Besides, we want to tell the story again next summer. It was that time of year right now, the 26th summer of my life. Where was my bridge away from this place? Where was my shepherd? The magpies cackled back, Ha! Not for boat girls, not for whores, certainly not for you, Shek Yang. Faraway drumbeats scattered my thoughts. They sounded like fishermen beating pigskins to herd fish into nets. But this was neither the right time of day for it, nor their usual slow, steady pulse. This tempo was hurried and uneven, a palpitating heart. I draped a shawl over my shoulders and stepped to the porthole rested my chin on folded arms, and stared out at my world. Eight wooden huts hovered on stilts over the hard mud, same as they always had. The beach junk at the end hadn't been there when I was sold away as a child. Now it looked as parched and worm-ridden as this old boat, the one my young body paid for, 
now my hollow haven. Beyond, the mudflat stretched out forever, empty except for an old woman on a skid gathering mud skippers, and the girl with her clam bucket who I'd found squatting in the cabin when I returned after thirteen years away. A fluttering sea breeze chilled my sweat. The air tasted of iron and salt. A storm was coming. The fish would be swimming deep. Then why had the fisherman's drumming grown louder, more erratic? In a paddy field somewhere, buffaloes moaned. Pigs whined. Dogs barked back. The magpies chattered. I'd forgotten how noisy this place could be. I'd forgotten many things about Sun Wui. As a little girl, this narrow inlet had seemed like a wide-open gulf, big enough to swallow the world. I'd forgotten the stench of fish on everything, every plank, every stone, the salt-sour taste in the air from shrimp drying on racks, and the mud, the mud, always the mud. Black and squishy at water's edge, but scouring young fingers when they dug down for clams. Spreading inland, the mud turned coarse, pockmarked with stones and crab holes, but never dry enough to earn the name dirt, never letting go of whatever it sucked in, boulders, driftwood, my father's stranded fishing junk. Nobody knew where he was, where he'd gone, or whether he was still alive. Nothing was left of him, my mother, or the family we'd once been in this rotting carcass of a vessel. Not a strand of rope, not even a familiar stain on the deck. This hollow hulk that he'd traded my young life for had been abandoned by its spirits. The clam girl splashed through a pool in the mud, swinging her bucket, stooping to examine something that caught her eye. I turned my head away, but too late. The memory flooded in. Years and years ago, another little girl had set down a clam bucket in nearly the same spot and picked up a dazzling red scallop. I'll give this to my new baby brother or sister. Do any day now, I thought. I remembered shrieking with laughter when a hermit crab popped out a claw and tickled my hand before I set it down and it scurried away. I'd clung to this memory through the years on the flower boats, always recalling that last perfect moment of my life before... Ah, but I always stopped there humming, shouting, anything to block out what came next. The blood across this very cabin's floor. No, I couldn't bear the thought, not even now. Everything suddenly went quiet, like the world holding its breath. No drumming, no birds, no breeze. The air weighed on my head. The shawl whipped off my shoulders. A rough hand seized my breast. His breath filled my ear again. My revulsion was tempered by the thought of his purse. Another copper cash toward the cost of a proper boat, something for once that was mine. Need to pay two times, I said. First one too quick. Not my fault, dear. Composing my best working smile, I half turned to him as something caught my eye. A ship crept past the headland, a stout three-masted creature of nearly black wood, sails tinted red by the setting sun. I would have taken it for an Eatwater coastal trader if it hadn't been for an unusually tall deckhouse at the rear. 
It swung into the inlet. I was stricken by its bulging, painted eyes. It didn't belong here. Local Guangzhou vessels rarely had eyes carved onto the bow, and Fukienese ones were round. But these were high and elongated, squinting like a tiger preparing to pounce. The coolie tugged my arm. You hear me, you bitch? Said fine, pay twice. Two ships, now three, all with tiger eyes. Other than that, they really were nothing more than tattered old junks. Whatever they'd come for didn't concern me, unless they sought the kind of refreshment I offered for cash. Meanwhile, I had an impatient customer to appease. This time he took more pleasure in making me earn my money than in the act itself. Skillful handwork was required to prime him into shape. Then he climbed on from behind and grunted and growled like a bull in rhythm with the fisherman's drumming, his cue swinging past his shoulder into my face with every thrust. I made the necessary noises while picturing a treat for afterward. Slices of fresh roast pork or a bowl of sweet bean curd. Or maybe his tip would cover both. A sharp knock at the door so startled me that I nearly bucked him off. He squealed in pain. A yang! It was the little clam girl. She pounded louder. What did she think she was doing? The stupid girl knew she was never, ever to disturb me while I was working. Hadn't I been kind to her, given her the forward hold, always sharing rice in exchange for a handful of clams? How dare she interrupt? The latch jumped from the slot and the door creaked open. I screamed, get out! The coolie threw himself off, smacked his head on a low beam, and danced into his trousers. Not you! I lunged for his leg, but he slipped away. Wait! You pay money! He nearly trampled the girl on his way out. My money, you turtle egg! Pay me! I almost crushed the girl myself as I stumbled through the doorway, pulling on my crumpled clothes. By the time my tunic was half-buttoned, he was already bounding behind the fishing huts toward the paddy field. See what you did? I grabbed the clam girl's muddy shirt and dragged her out to the deck. Tears and sweat mixed on her face. Ah, oh, Yang, I... The unmistakable crack of a musket shot singed the air. Magpies surged from the poop deck, forming a shrieking black cyclone overhead. With a high-pitched burst, they scattered toward the darkening hills. The girl grabbed my arm and pointed across the seaward rail. I said... Pirates! And that's where I'm going to stop because uh, that's where the next stage of the story begins. Absolutely. Perfect. So as I noted in the intro, this book gets started and it gets started really, really quickly. Uh, we jump into the protagonist and then the pirates come, the protagonist just uh, finishing work, I would guess. And then we have the, the pirates coming in immediately. I mean, it's a fast start to a book that I didn't expect from historical fiction. You know, a lot of times historical fiction like mine is long and boring. And uh, this was none, none of that. I mean, we get, we get a scene immediately where the protagonist is thrown into uh, this raid by the pirates within the first, what, what is that? Four pages, three pages. Um, yeah. 
And I fell in love with it immediately. And my wife actually picked it up. And so I disappeared for a couple of days during my reading while I was reading it. She picked it up and loved it. And so, I mean, she kind of actually gave me a couple of questions for the day too. And as Larry said, from the very beginning, you have to imagine that, that uh, this is not Larry reading the book. And when I first started reading it, I, I remember Larry's voice from a decade ago. And I, I at first, I did have Larry's voice in my mind while I read this, but that disappeared so quickly. Um, and it fell into the protagonist's voice by the time Larry even stopped reading um, where we were uh, today. Um, but, you know, my question with this, and I know the kind of the history of your of your research and your kind of your look into this whole era of pirating and then into uh, the true story behind the fiction. Where did this all begin and what was it? What was it that sparked your, because this, this was, this was a long time coming, I believe. What was it that sparked, first off, what was it that sparked your interest that you were able to delve so deeply into the subject matter and into this, into this specific true story? And then what was it? And was it always the intention to, to write a novel or was this just a research research fun in the beginning? Well, that's a, that's, that's a very good question. The second one, especially, well, I'll, I'll tell you how it started and I can answer both questions at once. So, um, so I live in Hong Kong. I've lived here 36 years. I live on an outlying Island called Lantau Island. I live on the least populated end. It's just a few villages. And, um, even when I moved here, the only access was by boat. And I've lived in this same village now for 30 years. It's a little village, there's no cars, it's very quiet. And just like the opening of the book, um, I have magpies on my roof every morning and every evening, scratching around, driving me nuts. There's sharp claws on, I have a, an aluminum roof on the top of my workroom. But anyway, I, I'm, you know, very much assimilated myself into this place. And I know a lot of uh, local people on the island. <clears throat> At the other end of the island, there's a small community called Tai O, which goes back a few hundred years and shows up in the book. It's a fishing community. It's a, it's a town on stilts. It's all these houses made of planks of wood and bamboo, even still on stilts over a series of canals. And so I know people who were born and raised there. One guy, Mr. Leung, owns a, a boat, which is a little cargo boat that brings things in and out to the island. And so I was talking to him one day, um, looking for ideas for a, an article, because I used to write a monthly article for this boating magazine here in Hong Kong. I needed maritime topics. So he mentioned that he remembered his grandmother used to sing a folk ballad about the lady pirate who stood up to three empires and one. And it was, she was kind of a folk hero. I thought, Ooh, that's interesting. Do you remember the words? And he said, no, he couldn't remember the words. And so I was intrigued. I went, I did whatever research I could. I went to, there's a little local, research uh, library in, in this village of Tayo. They didn't know one about it. I found a, one other, two other references to this folk song online. Another guy who'd grown up there who said his, 
his grandmother used to sing this song, but he didn't repeat, he didn't share the words. And I, I looked and looked, I couldn't find the words. But I was really intrigued about the lady pirate who supposedly was based on this island where I live a mm-hmm. um, little over 200 years ago. And so, of course, I started looking her up online on that uh, fount of wisdom and misinformation, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I did a bunch of research. It, was, it just really interested me. This was a really fascinating story. And if you look her up online, uh, the Chinese pirate queen, Jengi Sao, if you look her up, you'll find all sorts of fanciful stories about her. So I wrote, up this, I wrote this article for the magazine. And as soon as I turned it in, something about it didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Now, my background, actually, my undergraduate degree is in history. I studied history, and at my school in Vermont, every undergraduate had to write a thesis, and my thesis was a historical novel based on my grandfather's life, mm-hmm. which I never did anything with. But I, my mentor was an accomplished historian, and he taught me how to properly do historical research. And the thing that he really drilled into my head was how to develop my bullshit meter when it came to historical research. And it came up many times when I was researching my grandfather. And when I was researching this woman, I felt alarm bells just going off. Those old trainings as a historical researcher were telling me something isn't quite right. And I sat down to figure out what isn't quite right. There were several things, since I know the culture, there were several things in these accounts that just didn't make sense in the context of Chinese culture. And and other things just, just seemed exaggerated. So what you do when historical research seems questionable is go back to the source. Look at who their sources were. Go back to their sources. And I did that. And I then realized that it actually all was traceable back to one original source that was written by a, an amateur historian in China about 25 years after the fact. And I found an English translation done by a German missionary of this, this book. And that, that's the one that people in the West use as the, the basis. And the, the author said right from page one, he has an agenda in writing this. And it would take me too long to describe what that agenda was. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he had an agenda of promoting the bravery and the, the, the competence of the Chinese Navy in battling the scourge of piracy at that time, mm-hmm. which actually very untrue. And he reported on conversations and meetings that he couldn't have been privy to. And even if he had eyewitnesses, these were like meetings between the pirates that he quoted as if they really happened, that no one would have been witness to that he could have spoken to. Right. So it was a mix of fact and fiction. And so I thought, well, I got to find what can I do to piece together the real story? And there, you know, back back then, and even now, um, Chinese never really romanticized pirates like Westerners do. They were just criminals. 
And so you didn't find anyone with an interest in writing about pirates or criminals. Um, and so there's very few Chinese sources except things like magistrates records, court records for those times when pirates were arrested and they would, they would record those things. And there were some eyewitness accounts by British and Portuguese uh, naval officers who were in the area, but it was a lot of scattered little tiny tidbits of information. So I just started gathering these things kind of as a hobby, not knowing what I was doing with them. Um, and so, you know, this is the second part of your question. I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I kept doing research and late at night I'd sit there with my laptop and I'd, I'd find something and I'd tell my wife, Oh, here's something really fascinating. Here's a new bit. I found this is like a movie. You know, and, and I said, where's the book about her? I got to find the book about her. Surely someone's written one. And after many months of hearing that, my wife finally said, will you shut up about, I wish there was a book about her. Don't you get it? You have to write about her. And that's when, also when I discovered a quote by Toni Morrison, who said, if there's a book that you want to read and no one's written it yet, it's your duty to write it. Right. And so I thought, okay. I guess that's what I have to do. And so I spent five years, not full time, but I spent five years of doing all the research I could. And I contacted historians who were expert in the field. And I went to maritime museums in the region and spoke to people there. And, and, um, a few of these historians shared with me a lot of documents that I would never have had access to. And I just had stacks and stacks and stacks of this information. And the, the hard part was weeding out the stuff that was unreliable sources. Right. Because I just wanted it all to make sense. And the, the, my first impulse obviously was to write the definitive biography mm. of this woman. Mm -hmm. And by the way, her base later on is right on the island where, where I live at the other end of the island. So mm -hmm. of course I, I went there to look and looked at you know, various sites, but I thought I'm going to write the definitive biography, but there were too many holes in the history. There's still big gaps in the story that I couldn't fill in. And so a lot of those I was able to fill in after doing all this research with kind of extrapolating using other sources of similar kinds of actions or events and kind of just figuring out what is the most plausible thing to have happened. I, I didn't set out to write an adventure novel. Right. I wanted everything to be as true as possible, but I realized finally the only way to do that is to write a novel because if I wrote a nonfiction book, about her and here's this big gap about things or here's things I'm making assumptions about, you know, you have to qualify those statements all the way throughout and it would get really annoying. Yeah. And so it had to be a novel. And then there were two things that finally kind of triggered my decision to go ahead. One was a big discovery I made. And I don't know if you've gotten this far in the book, but there's a whole section of the book, which takes place in Vietnam, mm -hmm. which at the time was called Anam. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any, I, I 
I knew that the pirates had been commissioned as a mercenary Navy to fight on one side in a civil war in Vietnam that was going on at the time. And I'm not spoiling anything by, by saying this, but there was nothing else about it that I could find. There was a footnote at the end of a book that mentioned in the footnote, not even in the main text of this book, that the pirates had been spotted at a place called the Spirit River in central Vietnam on such and such date. And so I had to find out more. So there were no sources I could find locally or in English or in Chinese. So I, I found some Vietnamese histories translated into English. And I realized on that date, there was a major battle, the definitive battle of this civil war mm-hmm. that turned the tides and that they reported the, the, the Navy that was in this river was, well, I'm going to have to give this part away, was, was uh, decimated in a surprise attack. And then I found other sources that pointed out that the emperor of Vietnam had actually come down to the river to be with the troops. I looked up the date and the date was the day of Chinese New Year in mm. Vietnam that's called Tet. And the emperor had come down to host a New Year banquet for his troops. And all the top generals were there. And one, gen- I don't wanna give this part away. One of these generals had a very special thing about this person. Now, at that time, the, the pirates, now this, this woman, Yang, my main character, had been abducted by pirates and forced to marry this one leader. And for reasons you discover in the book, she decided to stick with him. And he was either the number two or number three admiral in this mercenary navy. So here's where I get to the speculation. There was nothing that told me this, but... If he was the number three in this Navy, certainly he would have been one of the VIP guests at this banquet with the emperor. Certainly she would have accompanied him to this banquet. Certainly she would have met this emperor. She would have met this general who had the very special kind of aspects. And although I can't document this, it just makes absolute sense she would have been there. And so it not only gave me kind of a discovery, a historical discovery, but it also gave me a chance to really ponder her character. Because here was someone who started out as a poor fishing girl, was sold by her father into prostitution, kidnapped by pirates, got all the worst of the worst that life could dole out to a person. And here she was, dining with an emperor, how must she have felt? And then, as I mentioned, there was a surprise attack that night and everything fell apart. She had reached the apex of something beyond any what anyone might have ever even dreamed of for their own life. And then it all came crashing down. And I thought, wow, this is dramatic. And this is something that really would affect a person's character. And that's when I decided this book isn't about the history. It's trying to understand her as a 
person, as a character. And that made it essential for it to be fiction because I wanted to get inside her head, her soul, and really understand her. Yeah. And so that's when it really became clear. And then if you don't mind me <laughs> talking a bit more, I'll tell you about this other incident because it's really interesting. No, I was just going to ask you, like that moment of like revelation probably gave you just like chills, right? That moment where you filled it all together. And then it's probably like almost like personally, when I find something like that, it's like I almost feel nauseated with excitement that it could be oh, I, and I continue to write about it. Yeah, but go on. Yes. Yeah, I was thrilled. In fact, I contacted my one of my historical advisors. He was a professor of history. Um, I said, and I, I told him about this whole scenario in Vietnam. I said, here's what I've pieced together just by kind of extrapolating. Mm -hmm. I said, is this legitimate? I mean, can I get away with claiming this? He said, of course. He said, you made a discovery. I said, but there's no one written about it. He said, you know, we, we don't know everything yet. That's why we still have historians. If we didn't know everything, we wouldn't need historians. Right. So you've made a discovery. Go with it. So that was really validating to hear that. Yeah, but, absolutely. But it's, then, it's really cool on this end, but yeah, go on. So then there was another incident, and it relates to chapter one that I was just reading to you. Um, first of all, the description of the, the place is based on an actual place on this island, although it doesn't it actually is supposed to take place about 100 miles west of here. But right, the landscape isn't that much different. Mm -hmm. But the, those mud flats. But anyway, um, where I live, there's a, a footpath that goes across the whole spine of the island over to Dongchong, which is where the airport is now. And that's where the pirates used to be based. So my wife and I, it's, it's about a two and a half hour walk through absolute wilderness. So my wife and I will often uh, walk that on a Sunday. And so one Sunday we were walking and we thought, we've done this so many times. We saw a little side trail that we'd never been on. We decided, let's, let's take that side trail. And so we, we went and it was bringing us down a steep slope and then it just ended. And we realized we'd come to a dead end and we were in the middle of this forest. So we tried to retrace our steps, but it was such a steep slope and, and very sandy. And so we were slipping and sliding. We couldn't walk back up the hill. So we figured we have to just make our way in what direction we think is the right way. And, and maybe we'll come across another trail. So as we're walking through the woods, we, we heard somebody there and we were a bit cautious but we found this old woman stooped over a wicker basket where she was gathering herbs and twigs to put in her basket. And so we went up to her and said, we're kind of lost. Can you point us the way to Dong Chong? And she said, oh, yeah. Um, you help me carry my baskets back to my village, and then from there I can point you to the, the trail to Dong Chong. So we said, okay, we'll help her carry her baskets. And she told us that she'd been gathering all these medicinal plants to make a, a brew for her husband who was sick at home. And so we're talking along the way and my wife asked, how old are you? She said, I believe the number was like 86. And the calculator started going in my head. 
because this was around maybe 2008. And the last big wave of piracy in this region, in, in the Pearl River Delta on the South China coast, was in the 1930s. And places like this island that I, I'm on in the 1930s was part of British colony of Hong Kong, but it was a backwater. There was just a few little villages here. There was one little army outpost way in the, in the other end of the island. And it was a target for attacks. There were pirate gangs who were based near Macau, the Portuguese enclave on the other side of the, the Delta. And they would raid villages until the British finally came in and just and took care of the problem. This was the 1930s. So I calculated this woman was 86 years old. She would have been a little girl when during this whole time. So I asked her, did you ever see any pirates? And she looked at me and said, how does the foreigner know about the pirates? Mm -hmm. And it turned out she was in a raid. They came and raided her village. They were still the old sailing junks. They would come in. They came in. She described it, that they came in and they anchored offshore and they, they, plowed into the village with blades and they were grabbing women and young boys and stealing things. And a few places were set on fire. Her mother finally grabbed her and hid her under the, uh, the uh, counter in the kitchen so that they wouldn't grab her. But she gave me all these details about this actual pirate raid. Mm -hmm. And if I had continued reading chapter one, there's basically a verbatim transcript of what she told me. I thought, oh my God, what serendipity yeah. that I met an eyewitness to a pirate raid. And in the 1930s, considering that what a backwater this was, the details wouldn't have been all that much different from the 1800s, you know, the, right. the, the beginning of the 19th century. So I felt free to use these details just as they were. And I just knew I had to write this. I, there was no turning back. I, it was as if uh, their spirits had come down and said, "You need to, you need to fix our reputations and write about us." Yeah, that's fast. That's my long answer to your question. No, it's a fab. No, this is everything that um, that I would want in in an interview because it tackles so much when it comes to not only your passion into where it all began. But this idea that, well, and especially it's it, the, the answer spans the question of should this be nonfiction or should it be fiction? And then that making that leap of to what it should be. And you already answered my other question of what freedoms it gave you as a, as a novelist instead of doing a biography. And it already answered my question about what things, do, even though it is fiction as novelists, the one of uh, those of us who care they, we want to get as much right as we possibly can. And if we can't, that will absolutely drive us crazy. Um, That's right. So those are like four of my questions lined up that you just tackled for me. Um, well, there's one issue that you did bring up that I, I do want to mention in that, you know, when I was in this MFA program that we attended together, I did discuss with my mentor, Mary Helen Stefaniak, who writes historical fiction. 
and and we had a lot of talks about what liberties you can take in historical mm-hmm. fiction. And she mentioned a quote from, I think the name is John Barthelm, who said, the rule is never contradict what is known. Well, yeah. So what that meant to her and what that meant to me was, first of all, you don't move the facts around. You know, so many times you'll see things on film or even in some books where they say some scenes have been changed to improve the story. Mm-hmm. And so that was absolute no-no for me. And there are right. time, places in this book where I would have had a more exciting story if I'd switched the history around, but absolutely mm-hmm. wouldn't allow that. Yeah, I wouldn't change the outcome of any event. and then everything else had to be plausible. I couldn't just say, ooh, here's a cool place to add this kind of scene. No, it had to be plausible as if, and I treated it as if I was writing nonfiction. Right. So that was very important to me. I I really, I get really disappointed when I finish a nicely written historical novel and then find out at the end that some things have been changed to suit the story. And yeah. I feel betrayed by the author. And I just didn't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know where you're coming from with my, my, my new book is historical fiction. And I felt the same way I had original, I had a submarine in there and I had to make sure that the date, the sailing dates of that submarine were all, well, like you said, I couldn't change them to make the story better. You know, at one point I had to change the submarine to make the story work. Because the sailing date, the, the sailing dates didn't work with the with the narrative. Um, but you're absolutely right, and some people don't do it. And do you think do you think that is just we as writers, or do you think there's a larger audience out there that feels the same disappointment you do when they read a novel, and those things have been changed to make the plot or the narrative more exciting? No, I think what you just said is true. There's a lot of people. I think even, you know, you and I are dealing with exact dates and chronologies and things, and that may not even show up in the book, but I do feel that people get a subliminal sense of that. Mm-hmm. And look, a lot of people approach history through fiction, through films, through television series, and they think they've learned something. And so I, I think those people who are coming at this, not because they want to read an entertaining book because, wow, that sounds like a really interesting person and era. I want to know more about it. Um, they're reading it in a palatable form in fiction. And I think most people like that would be unhappy to know what they just read isn't exactly correct. Mm-hmm. And so... And I do think they do get they get a sense of that, yeah. that, that an author has put that kind of care and attention into making sure that if it isn't something that's documentable, at least it's the most plausible thing to have happened at that time and the most plausible reaction by that person. Right. And, the, and good readers, I think, like what you said, they get a subliminal sense of something that's not plausible. Is that, you know I think I mean? so. I, yeah. I, I really do think so. I, I know I do. And I did even as a kid, you know, I always read historical fiction, you know, for kids. Yeah. And, and so 
I felt the same way. Sometimes I'd read a, a book, like I remember reading about Thomas Edison, a novel about him. And that was my favorite book when I was little. And so it inspired me to learn more about him. And then I was kind of disappointed to find out that the novel kind of invented a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that was when I was a kid. So Yeah, I felt the same way. Um, I have one question moving from kind of history and 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 nonfiction versus fiction and all the research that you did. Was it difficult or did it take some time or did it take some drafting to find your voice as the protagonist in this one? <laughs> Is there a word beyond difficult? It was yeah. torturous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as a reader, I loved it. I have to say that like, uh, I finished this book last night and, um, I loved every, I would have finished a lot further if I didn't start a new job and everything like that a lot earlier if I didn't start a new job and stuff. But the voice, I feel, you know, as I think I'm a pretty good reader that Larry, Larry nailed it. And so I I do want to know about that to going from, from previous work maybe, or even other stuff that you've written to, to getting into this voice. Oh God. <laughs> um, I, as, as anyone who mentored me in the MFA program would tell you, it was pretty crappy writing at first. And I wrote it in third person. And that was a, a choice because I know this kind of community of people and they're very taciturn Mm -hmm. you know they don't talk much most of these boat people that i know so i thought oh third person that's very good sort of keeps a distance well then i realized that's that's fatal for writing a novel (laughs) keeping a distance between the reader and the character no way so i i wrote this entire thing and actually the whole book was double the length because actually this book It's just part one of the story. I'm working on part two. But I originally wrote both together. It was a quarter of a million words. Oh, my gosh. uh, When it was finally done. And and it was all written in third person. And I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't written anything of this scope before. And it was more emphasis on the history than on the characters. And the characters were flat. And... I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And I finally just, I gave up on it. After probably about five years of rewriting and rewriting, I had eight major drafts. Now you multiply that by not (laughs) quarter of a million, but many hundreds of of thousands of words per draft. And there were several million words. And in the end, I was unhappy with it. It just didn't work. And I gave it to people who were really critical and harsh about, about how I'd written it. And so I, I said, I'm abandoning this. I don't know what I'm doing. And I put it aside for a year. And then my wife said, you know that you are meant to do this. You have to finish it. I said, I'm exhausted by it. I, by this time, I'd uh, spent about nine years of my life working on this book. Again, it wasn't full-time. I had other work at the same time, but there were periods when it was full-time. And I thought, do I really want to 
spend more of my precious time on this earth, on this story? And she said, yes, you have to. And so I looked at what I'd written and I realized since I'd started it from a, the wrong point of view, first of all, I'd taken all my research and I had compiled it into a chronology. So I had this long, long chronology of actual documentable events and all my notes. And so I was trying to write a history and kind of shoving the characters in. That's the wrong way around. So I threw out nine years of work. I literally just dumped it. I kept my original outline. And then I spent the next six months basically learning how to do it. And I realized I have to write it in first person. I have to get inside this woman's head. And so I spent months just inhabiting her and exploring her. And then, and my wife's a clinical psychologist. She's Chinese too. And so she became my mentor and she regrets it because we all, we take an after dinner walk every day. <laughs> Just talk about chit chat, but these after dinner walks turned into things where I'd say, okay, so Yang did this on this date. Yeah. And then she did this on this date with this, this kind of reaction. What's the personality type that connects those two responses? And we'd re we'd construct her personality based on events that we knew. Mm -hmm. So again, my, my fascinating, it's fascinating the, because the, the, the task I gave myself was not to come up with an exciting character and let her take over the story. My task was to let the story tell me who the character is. If, if you can get my meaning. Yeah. And so there were times literally, even when I was writing it, where I'd come up to an event and I would sit there for hours in my favorite chair, which is behind me thinking, what would Yang do? And often these insights would come in the shower like they often do. <laughs> yeah. her, her voice would come to me and say, you got it wrong. Here's what I would have done. And gradually, I just got a sense of this woman. So she's, you know, a lot of writers will base characters on people they know. But I didn't know anyone like this. So she came to me gradually over this process of basically psychoanalyzing her and I had the evidence of certain things that we knew about, you know, here she was this, eventually she becomes this powerful pirate leader. And there, if you read about some of these accounts online, the ones that, that make me cringe, they talk about this, this kind of nasty, greedy, violent woman. And yet I would find an account here and there of her sharing a coat with a captive or taking in this, and he'll be in book two, a 13-year-old Dutch boy who was part of a group of captives and kind of adopting him and treating him like a pet. So there was a soft side to her. She wasn't this just this greedy, violent criminal. And so I knew she was a lot more complex. And, and especially, you know, a woman in this world, um, becoming a leader. I mean, yeah, I know this is a spoiler, but I think it pretty much says it on the back of the book cover. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, a woman to rise through this, this society and become a leader, there was something very special about her. She obviously was charismatic. She, she obviously, from so many of the things that I found out about her, was quite brilliant. And I figured her 13 years as a prostitute also made her very good at reading men. Mm-hmm. And so there were many, many complicated things to put together to create this character. And so then when I started writing it in first person, it just clicked. I knew. I knew I'd gotten it. And of course, there were a few drafts in first person. But by then, I already knew I got it. It was just a matter of deeping it, deepening it on each draft. Make it go deeper, make it go deeper. Make sure it's real. You know, like I said, sometimes I'd stop and I'd consult my wife and say, what do you think about this? And um, again, from a psychologist's point of view, and she even wrote a psychological profile of the character <laughs> for me, which I keep in my notebook of all my notes. So. Yeah. Anyway, um, it did take a long time to find her voice to answer yeah. your question. And, and I think I nailed it. I'm I happy with it. I do too. I, I, I admire the book. I admire the work. I admire the years that went into it and you could see it. And, and the interesting part about it, and we got to wrap up because I think we could have done this for another two hours. Brandon's nodding at me like, this was really, really interesting and we could keep going, but maybe we, we should do a part two when the new book comes out. Um, I think just having read it and reading through the pacing of it, it felt like there was so much work to be done to keep the pacing moving. But, but I could see that there was so much between the dialogue and the movement forward in the description that you knew as a writer uh, that had been cut to keep the to keep the book moving forward, and that's I mean, having just ventured into historical fiction myself for the first time, I mean, this is something that I aim to do someday. Something that is paced like this, that has so much dialogue, um, so much great dialogue, so much great pacing and in, in, in characters uh, throughout it. Um, I urge anybody to buy to buy the book. Um, at, at, we want to thank Larry for talking with us. And I think we could have gone a, another two hours. It's a, it, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a fasting book. It's, it's by our conversation today. You wouldn't think that it's a, you would think because we were talking about history and we we're talking about research or you're talking about a factuality that it would be like a historical fiction novel that it, that is slow, but it's not, this is a fast paced book that is entertaining all the way through. And I feel like I did learn so much and I had to keep re- referencing the map at the beginning, the two maps at the beginning to see where, where the protagonist was going around uh, it, it, in the sea uh, during the book. And, um, you know, I, I, one thing, another thing, and I just, I just have to say that every time we reached a new town and like what you talked about earlier with Ammon and how the protagonist was looking forward to it, looking forward to this and not really knowing what was going to happen when they got to, uh, this city, but every city in between had its own character and it felt so rich. And, um, uh, I was just fascinated by the book all the way through, uh, Larry, and I, I'm glad that you gave me the extra week to finish it. Like I said, I had a new job. And it would have, it would have, would have happened earlier. I'm much, I'm a much faster reader, but uh, uh, I, and this doesn't happen too much. Another anecdote is I have about seven books on my desk uh, at work, and I had a woman come in and substitute for me last week, 
and she had seven books laying there and, 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 um, uh, the flower book girl was on, on my desk and she read all read the back covers and the first pages of all the books that I had on, on my desk. And she's, she's, and she said, and I went and saw her later that day, just, just to say thank you for subbing. And she said, I really apologize for going through your things. I'm not that type of person. But of all the books, I really want to read The Flower Boat Girl. What do you think? And I said, I haven't finished it yet. I've still got another week, but I'm talking to the author next week. You'll have to listen to it. Um, so out of the, all the books that I had on the, on the desk, and they were formidable books, um, she picked The Flower Boat Girl to ask me, uh, is this one that I should, should go buy? And now I, now I have an answer for her, uh, most definitely. Oh, thank you. Um, so thank you, Larry, for joining us. Um, what's that? Yeah, Brandon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just have a, a quick comment, Larry. I'm, I'm fascinated. I didn't know what the book was about, but I just finished Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. I'm wondering if you'd read that. Uh, it's on the other side. I of haven't that. read oh. that one. Okay. I've read quite a few books about Caribbean pirates, but not that one. I, I've heard it's quite good. I, well, I read it and I follow, followed it up with Treasure Island just so I could see how true yeah. it was, mm -hmm. to, you know, so but now I'm fascinated by this story and you know, it's halfway around the world. So I, I, I now I'm, now I'm interested. Yeah. Well, and I thought too, the really interesting thing about this book too is, I mean, we are going through a change in our country now when it comes to um, gender fluidity and when it comes to uh, being more open, which is always a good thing to uh, different you know, the way in which we take lovers. And you look in this book and right, even from the very beginning, um, you know, the protagonist's husband or hu I mean, husband, I guess you would call him husband, uh, takes on a lover, but then kind of adopts the lover as a son so that he could be part of the family. It's a really interesting look or almost a mirror of how, you know, culturally um, we're seeing something from what? 200 years ago that the u.s struggles with now and i don't know how it is in 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 china when it comes to all of this gender fluidity stuff that's uh, very progressive and um but the book opens up those doors too that i thought was like was wonderfully intriguing to 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 see um on the page well that was that's a whole other topic that we yeah. talk about homosexuality <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know Gay yeah. marriage was was legal in Fujian province in China at that time. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And among um, so among the pirates, among the boat people in general, mm -hmm. it was a, a captain of a certain rank or of certain kind of reputation would almost always take on a young male lover. Yeah, didn't mean they were homosexual, but it was right. like he'd take on a protege who he would train to be, you know, someone who could. Be a captain in his own right and part of the role was that protege would sleep with him mm -hmm. and there were even rules of protocol hmm. about who was on top who did what and this was it was like a status symbol they, they were more than toy boys but nevertheless it was considered normal mm -hmm. in the boat people society at that time for a captain to have a catamite a young sure. kind of, uh, you know a, a male uh concubine right and it felt that way and that's what i loved about it too is when it was introduced it just felt you know there was not there wasn't this you know i mean i think western writers would have made a scene about it you know western writers would have made 
puritanical base of the United States, right? Uh, where we, what, 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 where we're all coming from that from that point of view. But I, I loved how, it, like you just said, Larry, it was like it was part of it. It was part of uh, just the culture on the ship. That was it. You know, and we move on, we move through. It's and and that's what I loved about the introduction of what, what was the word catamite, uh, a catamite yeah. within the culture. And you just you know you just read through it, and it felt the way it was written felt so natural every day. And I think I think that was, I mean, that's another point of the book that I admire. Well, thanks. Yeah. All right, so we're wrapping up. Um, but go out by the book. You can get it where. I mean, where do you suggest we get it? I mean, because because Larry's in Hong Kong. I mean, of course, there's Amazon. There's the biggies, but well, you can go to is it bookshop.org where you can order from your your local um, independent bookshop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think many bookshops are actually stocking the book, but you can order it through any bookshop. And yeah. if you want it online and you are looking to support locals, then I think it's bookshop.org. Yeah. Or buy it on Amazon. It. That's and good. That's good for me. Yeah. Or you know, if, I mean, I do like to support local bookshops. Yeah. You can walk if you have an independent bookshop in your neighborhood, and you can ask them to order it. Yep, they can absolutely. order it easily, and it'll take a couple of days. Yeah, that's a good way. And it's indie. I think it's Indiegogo. You can go to. Um, but if you want to, if you need Amazon, just do Amazon. I'm not against Amazon. Not for not for not for authors. You know, we'll take it. Um, yeah. But thank you so much uh, for joining us today, all the way from Hong Kong. Okay, it's my pleasure. And it's yeah. great to see you again. It's great to see you too. I hope too. it's not another decade before we meet again. I hope to, once this whole pandemic nonsense is over, I really want to come back Yeah. and uh, go to the U.S. West Coast again, well, Portland in, and, and other yeah. places. Well, if you're in Oregon, we'll meet you up there. That'd be lots of fun. I'm always looking for an excuse. And I know Sean is too. Sean's always looking for an excuse to head over to Portland. That'd be a fun, that'd be something fun to do. Yeah. All right. This is Case Johnston. This is literally podcast. I forgot to say this earlier. We were broadcasting (laughs) from Banyan One on historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. Our guest today was Larry Fain, the author of The Flower Boat Girl. And thank you again for joining us.